0: get them to talk about what they think the risks are and then it becomes more of a conversation than a lecture. Hey, Kirsten Diprose here with you on Ducks on the Pond. Welcome to our third
1: and final episode in our summer mini-series about keeping your kids safe on farm without wrapping them up in cotton wool. This is a collaboration with Peds Education. I'll be back with Jackie in February for our regular Ducks on the Ponds episodes. But right now, we're talking about our older teenagers. So 14 years and above. And the thing is with this age group is they may look like us, but cognitively, they're not quite like us
0: they've got these physical bodies, which are basically becoming like an adult's body. So if they were to come into us in the pediatric hospital, we would treat them very similarly, like in terms of the medications that we deliver. However, cognitively, developmentally, we still don't have the same level of those complex sort of thought processes that we have in adulthood because, you know, we get that from experience and so you know a 16 year old only has had 16 years on this earth and so their experiences are the sum of those 16 years. That's Grace Larson a pediatric nurse and founder
1: of PEDS. She's back of course along with Sarah Duncanson. Now for this episode we'll discuss ways to talk to a teenager about safety and first aid when we know they so often just don't want to hear it. And we'll also discuss mum guilt, that horrible feeling we mothers often unjustly feel when something bad happens, even if we're not there. We'll hear from Ash Napolitano, who featured in our earlier episodes as well. And I want to mention a special offer to you for our Ducks on the Pond listeners. Grace and Sarah love teaching first aid courses face to face, but I know that not everyone can actually attend these in person. So they've developed an interactive online course that brings all of that important information into practical tips on child safety. So their online course launches in a few weeks, and they would love to offer Ducks on the Pond listeners an exclusive discount. So to get it, you just need to sign up to the PEDS email newsletter, stay up to date. And then when this online course launches, use the code DUCKS10 to get a 10% discount. So that code is DUCKS10. Now back to our teenagers. And can I just say, from the teens I know, our future is in good hands. I reckon they get a really bad rap because I don't think there's ever been a generation of teens more accepting of people for who they are, conscious about the environment. So hats off to our young people. But while many of our teens have big hearts and open minds, a key characteristic of teenagers is risk-taking. And it's not their
0: fault, it's how they're wired. Here's Grace, and then you'll hear Sarah. So they may take. Risks that we wouldn't take because they don't have the same depths of understanding and experience that we do as adults. Their injuries definitely reflect this. You know, they come in following risk taking behavior. I've looked after teens that have come in following train surfing, they've come in following different sort of climbing of heights. Also, in motor vehicles, you know, they take more risks within the vehicles themselves. So they might. You know, drive on terrain, which is more unsafe. They might go at speeds, which are unsafe, or they may not even wear their seat belts sometimes. So that's sort of the mechanism of injury that we sort of see in those older children.
2: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. And what we see is that the severity of the injury is directly linked to the mechanism of their injury. So how they sustain that injury and because they are taking those risk-taking behaviours or they're doing things that are more advanced than what our younger children are doing, their mechanism of injury is more severe and therefore their injury is more severe. And unfortunately, some of them lead to fatality.
1: Is drowning still a factor at this age where obviously they've got an awareness of water. Most people can swim quite well at this age, but do we still see drowning as a problem?
0: Look, above 14 years of age, it doesn't tend to be as high of a problem. However, in saying that, it is still a problem. Like there has just been recently a teen from my niece's school who drowned over the Christmas holiday break in some surf and that was a 16-year-old. And, you know, we're talking about Drowning earlier, like I actually lost one of my cousins to drowning as a young adult. So, you know, I think drowning should always be on our radar, although it definitely is highest risk in that one to 14 year age group. And probably
1: from what you've been saying, would it be associated with risk-taking behaviour perhaps when it happens?
2: Yes. So what we tend to see is we see one scenario where they're taking risk-taking behaviours as well as being in a body of water. For example, they may be now engaging in drinking behaviour as well as swimming, and that's never a good combination. So that's where we see a drowning. But the other thing that we see is that adolescents are now engaging in more risk-taking swimming. So they might be going further out into deeper water, or they might be going into rivers with currents. But we also see things where adolescents have gone in to assist someone else who has drowned or drowning and they end up drowning themselves because they cannot sustain themselves in the water as well as the person who is now scrambling onto them. So that's another scenario that we see with the adolescent age group. It's not all about risk-taking behaviour and necessarily doing the wrong thing, but also trying to assist others.
1: And while most of us can swim, at least well enough by the time we're teenagers, that's not the case for everyone, including many refugee or migrant children. Here's Ash Napolitano, who you met in the first episode in this series. She has founded the Hunter Boyle Swim Program in memory of her two-year-old son who drowned on a farm dam in Shepparton.
3: We're about to start the next swim term. We are providing funding for around 30 children of refugee families. And also funding their mothers to complete swimming lessons. So these beautiful people, you know, a lot of them have come over via boat. And I've been told stories about how some of the parents actually, you know, drowned on the way over here. So their wives and their husbands and their children are terrified of water. You know, it's taken away such an important person in their life. And here in Shepparton, we have rivers everywhere. We've got pools everywhere. You know, everyone has some kind of contraption that holds holds water in their house. We have such a swim culture yeah. in Australia. Mm. Yes. Yeah, we do. And I think making sure that these children from other countries and other cultures are able to be safe around the water and are uh, given these opportunities to learn how to swim, that's the least we can do for these kids. Another major
1: cause of injury and death in our older teens are vehicles, including quad bikes. Here's Grace again.
0: Because once they get to 16... You know, they're technically able to operate that machinery. However, they may not have the cognitive ability to ascertain safe places to drive. Hot bikes, in, in particular, they're designed to have maximum maneuverability. They generally have a high center of gravity. They have low tire pressure. They've got narrow wheel bases and short turning circles. So they've got a really big risk that they'll flip over. And if we combine that with, you know, that developmental risk taking behavior, it makes them a really big hazard. There's actually recently been a 16-year-old that was killed in a quad bike accident where the bike was travelling down a gravel road. They had another teen as a passenger. They lost control on a corner and the bike fell a few metres into a creek. And, you know, that's a really heavy piece of machinery to fall on you and then into a body of water as well. Grace says the key with this age group is
1: actually putting some of the responsibility into their own hands, which means
0: having a conversation with your teen, which is easier said than done. Again, if we think back to that, that triage of safety, you know, if they're going to be taking the quad bike anywhere, we should ask them, all right, where are you going? And what are the risks with where you're going today? And have them say, well, I'm going up an incline or there's a little bit of gravel there or, you know, talking about that sort of stuff to sort of say, well, all right, what route might you take instead? Really planning that out, to this might also be an issue. And if it is an issue for you, what's your plan around that? Um, And one of the tips that I got given around having conversations with teenagers is that rather than sitting them down and being like, right, we're going to have this conversation now at the table and it's going to be all serious, actually having them in those moments when you're driving them or driving with them to and from places. You don't have that direct eye contact. It's not sort of so intimidating where you're like, I'm talking to you, I'm the adult, you're the teen. It's more about, oh, hey, look, I know that you're wanting to use a quad bike tomorrow. Let's have a bit of a chat now. Like, where do you want to go? Have you thought about, you know, having having it be a bit more casual in those moments when you're sort of driving to or from places or going for a walk together or things like that." They also can't get away from you, so that's also handy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to add to that. I used to work on the adolescent ward prior to working in the paediatric intensive care unit, Uh, and I remember having a conversation with a teenager who had been involved in a train surfing incident and had recovered enough to come to the ward. And we had a really, really great deep conversation one day and his parents were present, and when... I left the room, they followed me and they said to me, I can't believe how much he engaged with you. We have told him and talked to him about all of those things before and he literally shuts us down. And I think that's a really good point that sometimes it's not you as the parent. Sometimes it might take someone else to talk to your child or to instill those safety messages. And a really great idea is to enroll them into a first aid course, send them off to a first aid course when you know they're hitting those ages where they're starting to go out independently and make that a hard clause for their participation in those activities that you have to actually go and learn first aid from someone else. And I'll be doing that with with my children they they know first aid from a very young age from me but it's the same as swimming lessons i was a swimming teacher and i don't teach them swimming because they don't learn the same way from me as they do from someone else sometimes they will listen to someone else better than what they'll listen to
1: you and it's worth noting that it's highly recommended that anyone who lives on a farm should have first aid training another risk factor for older teens that sarah duncanson wants to highlight is guns now many of us have them on farming properties
2: and it might not be pertinent to every farming family, but it is something that has come up in recent times in a couple of rural communities that I know of. Some children at this age are allowed to independently use them. And I think just being mindful around the use of weapons, if that is something you choose to do in your household, having some pretty Strict guidelines about when and how they're used, about who is in the vicinity of that space when that adolescent is using that weapon is just so crucial. There has been a really horrible recent fatality involving an accident and a weapon and a 17 year old that I'm aware of. So that is something that I think needs to be discussed as a family and put in some hard sort of guidelines or boundaries around the use of those. And I Again, having younger peers or peers around you, not being distracted when you're using dangerous items, whether that's a weapon or a machinery, but having your full attention focused on the task at hand. And I think once they're starting to get to this age, too, uh, we start to place a lot more responsibility on them because they are really useful around the property. They're really useful around the house. My husband continuously says, I cannot wait till the kids are old enough to go and chop wood themselves. (laughs) You know, I cannot wait till the kids can go and round up the sheep and bring the sheep in themselves. It's really important that we remember that their brain is still developing and they still do not have that full functioning capacity, especially in males. We know that that doesn't sort of peak until their early twenties to mid twenties. So just being aware of that, they still need guidance, they still need boundaries, and they still
1: need us to be by their side teaching them at this age. Great advice. Thank you. I thought because this is our final episode of this series, which I've really, really enjoyed having a chat to you both about. So, thank you. I just, it kind of, you know, occurred to me sometimes how overwhelming it can be being a mum on a rural property and a dad, of course, but like sometimes it can just feel so much. And I don't know, do you have any advice to kind of help keep perspective that while we're always trying to look after? our children and look after their safety.
0: We need to look after ourselves as well and not get overwhelmed by this stuff. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think, you know, sometimes I just walk outside and I'm like, there's so many things that I need to do. So yeah, it can feel really overwhelming. Like we work, we've got kids, we've got a property, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air. Plus, you know, that cognitive burden to be thinking of, you know, safety as well on top of that. So Look, I think it's really important that we use our support networks. So, you know, that is our partners, that is our families, that is our friends, that we talk about what we're experiencing and what we're feeling and we're having like open and honest conversations around that so that people want to be able to help and support us. So we give them the opportunity to Help us when we need it. Sarah and I are really big on cooking meals for our friends and family when they have extra levels of stress on them. People are generally really happy to help you out with whatever you need emotionally to support.
2: And I think tying that back to kids' safety, when you are well- supported and when you feel that you have an opportunity to offload some of that stress, you actually have a much clearer mind to be able to care for your children in a greater capacity. You have a better situational awareness so that you can watch out for your kids' safety. When you're so cognitively overloaded, when you walk out that door and you think, I have so many farm things to do. You actually lose the ability to be able to do too many things. And we're all wonderful multitaskers as mums, but we do have a limit. So being able to care for yourself and care for others is really important so that you do have that cognitive capacity.
1: And if something has gone wrong and a child has been permanently injured or died, a lot of mothers grapple with feelings of guilt and other trauma. Now, this part is going to be a tough conversation, and I won't pretend to know what it feels like to lose a child. Here's Ash Napolitano on the joy and grief of welcoming
3: a baby daughter after the death of their little boy, Hunter. So we have little Millie, she is eight months old, the spitting image of her brother, and that has been like a, that's added a whole other layer to our grief. Anyone who's lost a child. Would understand that, you know, when you fall pregnant with another child, it is terrifying. You know, pregnancy is terrifying already. (laughs) But I know for myself, like I had a lot of anxiety around forming attachments with Millie. To me, I was like, you know, what happens if I can't love her because I'm too scared to love her? And in my mind, that sort of formed around, you know, if I don't love this baby and something happens to her, it's not going to kill me like it did with losing Hunter. And so I've I've had to work a lot on myself to make sure that those thoughts sort of don't continue. But thankfully, you know, there's been no issues with attachment with Millie, but it's still been really, really difficult. You know, like we've just celebrated Millie's first Christmas, but it's our third without Hunter. And, you know, you're supposed to be really happy and jolly, but it's really, really hard. But we're working on it and it gives us a lot of hope having Millie. You know, she's going to grow up around Hunter's program and she's going to grow up knowing about how wonderful her big brother was and she's going to always know that he's left this amazing legacy behind
1: this is a, a bit of a a difficult question, which you don't have to answer, mm-hmm. because like you said, you you know you are sharing those uncomfortable details as a as parent, I think you can feel guilt about things even even though you weren't there and all of these things. do Do you ever feel guilt? and if so, how how are you working through that or or have you been able to overcome those feelings which
3: you know aren't helpful and that you don't deserve to feel? I think I'll feel guilty till the day I die, you know, even though I wasn't there when the accident happened. As a mum, we're supposed to protect our children from everything and we're supposed to fix everything. You know, I always think back and think, oh, well, maybe I should have just taken the day off work. Or if I had have kept him home for an extra hour, this wouldn't have happened. Or just all these thoughts run through your head Um and you blame yourself a lot, but I have been working through a lot of this, you know, like I see a grief counsellor and I also see um, a therapist, a psychologist, which is really helpful to work through those feelings of guilt. You know, as I said, I'm his mum. I, sh- I should have been able to protect him against everything in this world, but I wasn't there. Um, which I know, you know, deep down. No one could have ever anticipated that this would happen. But those feelings of guilt just don't go away.
1: As a nurse, Sarah has been with many families when they have lost a child. I want to use a story here, a bit of an anecdote, because
2: it's something that when someone asks me about grief and bereavement, I think of this situation, and it was a family that I cared for. And, again, I have not lost a child, and so I will never pretend to know what this feels like because it is unique for every single person that has been through that experience. But this particular family, I remember sitting with the mother whose son was killed in a motorbike accident on a rural property and he had passed away. And she said to me, how will I ever, ever get over this? He was, you know, he was such a good kid. He had his entire life ahead of him. Uh, She said to me, I will never get over the feeling of feeling guilty that I should have done something more. And whilst there is nothing in that situation that could ever make that mum feel better, I assured her that she has been the best mum for her child and that sometimes there is absolutely nothing we can do. But she was linked in with some incredible supports and she chose to take those supports up and she now runs a foundation for her son. Now, her situation was unique. She decided that that was going to be a way to hold space for that grief. But I think when I think of her situation, she turned that horrible situation into something that has now become a really positive situation. And I'm not saying that every mother that leaves as a child needs to go and start a foundation, but certainly linking yourself in to the right supports for you. So not every support out there is going to be the right one for you, but there are a lot and there are a lot to choose from to enable you to hold space for that grief, to remember your child in a
1: beautiful way, however that may look moving forward. For Ash, linking up with Kids Safe and other community organisations is helping her To continue to
3: honour her son. Our community has raised, I think at the moment we're sitting at about $40,000. Like it's just, it's incomprehensible how generous and how amazing our community is. You know, these people in Shepparton are so giving and so kind, you know, we've had huge donations. And I think that that's where a lot of this love from the community stems from is everyone has a child in their life you're either a parent or you know a child that you love and yeah so we've we've got a lot of things going on we have massive goals for this program we want it to be Australia-wide and I'm a very impatient person (laughs) so it's hard to take little steps but we want to make sure that you know everything is perfect so we're hoping that in the next couple of years that Hunter's program will be available to everyone. I absolutely
1: admire Ash's big goals and her determination I'm sure will get her there. Ultimately, big goals are needed to make a significant impact when it comes to farm safety for children because each year about 10 children die on Australian farms. Here's Sarah. Sarah.
2: What's quite sad is that the farm fatality numbers have been stagnant for the last 18 years and the farm risks are exactly the same as what they have been for the last 18 to 20 years. So we haven't actually seen any changes. And we see that anecdotally in the children that we care for in the intensive care unit, that we're not actually seeing a change in these farming incidents occurring. And there's some really great work being done out there and we would love to acknowledge Victorian Farmers Federation Farm Safety Victoria Kids Safe and also George the Farmer who's a great a new concept that has come out a great little character but there's a lot of work being done around this area but we have seen a stagnant rate in the last 18 years. What's really encouraging though, is that there's a lot of work being done in the young generations. So we know that the generation of farmers that are currently farming at the moment, it's a really hard concept to try and get their head around all of these changes that are trying to be brought in. But if we include the younger generation in these conversations, we know that that, like we talked about in the first episode, will become second nature and they will instill that in their farming practices
1: in the future. I'm genuinely shocked to hear that it hasn't improved. Like I just sort of thought over time that machines and technologies have improved and have more safety features I'd love to hear your thoughts. Why do you think things haven't improved? So it's a great
2: it's a great conversation to have and you are absolutely correct. A lot of our machinery and a lot of our practices have become safer. But when it comes to children on farms, there is still a stereotypical view that farms are a really holistic and an enriching environment to bring your children up in and that it won't necessarily happen to me. So certainly a culture is a big part of why we have seen stagnant numbers across those years. And it's and it is Quite alarming to see those statistics, especially when there has been a lot of work done into the machinery. But again, our children are not necessarily using that equipment or that machinery, so it comes back to education and culture and the stereotype that they are unlucky events rather than being they are avoidable events that we could have put measures into place to prevent them from happening. And I think the other thing is that in in the past there has been a lot of people try to engage farming communities who are not in farming communities or who are not in regional rural Australia. And we know, having been around farming communities for our lives, for our entire lives, that we are a unique population and we don't necessarily like to be told from someone who has no experience in that field. So I think that there's a lot of work being done now and I think in 10 years' time we will see a completely different statistic. So I think we will genuinely see that shift. It's just going to take time and I think we've moved from machinery and equipment to culture and education, which is really important. And that's it for this
1: episode of Ducks on the Pond. That was our last episode as part of our collaboration with PEDS Education on keeping your kids safe without wrapping them up in cotton wool. I want to thank Grace Larson and Sarah Duncanson, as well as Ash Napolitano and Gemma Kramer, for being part of this series. Again, if you're interested in signing up to the PEDS online first aid course, use the code DUX10 for a 10% discount. You just need to sign up to their newsletter first and then you'll find out when the course is launched. And just a quick note from me, I have a new podcast, totally separate to this one. It's called Innovation Ag, where I speak to scientists, farmers and ag industry leaders about how to make innovations happen. Basically a guidebook if such a thing is actually possible. It's being made through the Victoria Drought and Innovation Hub. Check out Innovation Ag wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast, Ducks on the Pond, is still continuing, of course, and I really look forward to catching you again in February. Jackie and I will be back as we kick off the next season of Ducks on the Pond. I'm so excited to bring it to you and I'll see you soon.